0: I want to share with you a, uh, a thought I had. It's, uh, it's funny how we remember things about some of our teachers. Well, this year, one of my favorite teachers and, ironically, one of my biggest nemesis, uh, Rabbi Michael Cook, uh, passed away. He was an inspiration uh, to me on many levels, but he was also my biggest nemesis because he kept asking really tough questions and challenging me to reach higher. Teachers don't always become friends, though they often do. Teachers are supposed to be builders, and Michael was indeed that. And I figured that since he challenged me at every moment, I would not just sit there and take it, I would respond in kind because I'm so introverted and shy and I would challenge him. I would ask pointed questions in class and I would simply not uh, and I would not simply accept an answer uh, if I still had a problem with it. Little did I know until many years later that he reveled in this. In fact, when he was here speaking from this pulpit several years ago as our scholar in residence, he uh, he said that though he was very short in stature, whenever I was around, he got taller because I always kept him on his toes. (laughs) It was the greatest compliment I ever got from a teacher, and it was the very first thing I thought of when I found out that he had died about nine months ago. You know, to have the freedom and the invitation to ask questions and to constantly challenge and be challenged is, I think, one of the most magnificent features and themes of Jewish tradition. As you know, our tradition is filled with questions. They never stop. When studying Talmud, we're supposed to learn with a partner who not only challenges us, but who challenges us to challenge him or her studying jewish is the socratic method on steroids there is always another question to ask there's always another possible answer questions define who we are don't they ever why the, ever wonder why the story of the exodus begins with questions why not just tell this Passover story and leave it at that? Because it is setting the table literally and figuratively to permit everyone of every age with every experience the freedom to ask the questions. Spiritual growth does not happen when we are fed the answers and sent on our way. No. Real spiritual growth happens when when we explore when we ponder when we question when we probe what somebody else tells us our spiritual growth ought to be there is no dogma in judaism that can not be questioned it may drive others crazy but in order to grow we must allow the space between ourselves and others and questions to fill that space The questions of the Seder do not introduce a meal. They introduce a dialogue, because a dialogue is a way to learn. And the tradition of four questions, of the four questions, may have its roots in the first four questions asked in the Torah. Those original four questions can help us dialogue with ourselves, with each other, and with God. And on these days of awe, they are questions of awe. So, what are the first four questions in the Torah, and how can they be meaningful for us today? The first question in the Torah, does anybody know? This is a test. No? Good. The first question in the Torah is addressed to Adam and Eve. In the creation story, God tells them that they can eat from any tree. For some reason, though, God tells them they're not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge of good of evil. But of course, they do. And then the text says, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they perceived that they were naked. And when they saw that they were naked, they became ashamed either of what they had done or of the fact that they were naked. They tried to hide. And for the first time in history, God asked a question, Ayeka, where are you? Now Rashi, who's the great uh, 11th century commentator, picks up the obvious question. (laughs) And in typical Rashi style, he answers his question without even asking it. And he said to us, God gave us the opportunity to be honest. So what Rashi's real question is, is simply this. If God put them in the garden, God knew where they were, why bother to ask such an obvious question? This is God's first question in his quest to teach humanity. Where are you? And it is the most fundamental question that we should be asking ourselves tonight. Where are we indeed? Adam's answer was one of fear and trepidation. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid, and so I hid myself. Adam was a fearful child who was just beginning to understand the world around him. Adam began to learn about himself, and it was this, I think, That scared him the most. In the past year and a half, we have had more than enough opportunities to ask ourselves where we are. Of course, many times we knew where we were physically, but at all times we wandered. We were fearful. We have been emotionally spent. We have been spiritually needy. There were constant challenges that tested us and mistakes that we could have made that would have, that, that could very well have made the difference between life and death, and where we thought we, uh, we always were, has been taken away from us by this invisible virus. But we have begun to emerge from our quarantines, physically, anyways. And now it's time to begin to emerge from our spiritual quarantines. Ayaka. Where are you now? Where are you hiding yourself? What have you been hiding from others? And maybe the most important question, where now are you going? Rashi is definitely on the right track that when he suggests that the first question, Ayeka, where are you, is so important. Because in suggesting that, It it gives them both the opportunity and a space for confession and reflection. God is not accusing them of anything, but only when they admit their mistake does God delve into the next question, which, of course, Yom Kippur uh, uh, is a question that we ask. And what is that second question? Well, after admitting eating of the fruit, by the way, it doesn't say anything about an apple in the Bible, just says the fruit. God asks the second question. It's a much more challenging question. And it says, What have you done? Now, you don't need to know Hebrew to recognize this question. I think almost every parent has said, What have you done? At least once with every one of their children. It is the intonation that a parent uses When they come home early from vacation and there are teenagers swarming all over the house, or when they have taken the car without permission. And what is the purpose of the question? Of course, to, uh, uh, to express disappointment, but it also has the added effect of reflecting on what we are ashamed of, or more importantly, I think, what we ought to be ashamed of. And these are two different things. Oftentimes, we aren't ashamed of what we ought to be ashamed of, and that's not really much of repentance. God is telling Eve, you may not be embarrassed by it, but you certainly ought to be. The inflection in the tone of the text is one of disappointment and one of expectation. Everyone has a Facebook page. Well, more or less, everyone has a Facebook page. Take a look at what people put up. Yeah, they put up pictures and stories of their children, their pets, their accomplishments, and so forth. That's easy. That's natural. But as a spiritual side, instead of Facebook, I'm going to go into competition with Mark Zuckerberg. I'm going to invent SoulBook. And on its pages will be our deeply held convictions and faith, as well as our moral lapses, the times that we miss the mark, and our sins of all kinds. Now, I'll be honest, I don't think I'm going to be able to raise any capital for it. Okay? But after all, though, isn't Yom Kippur kind of a way that God is signing us up to soul book? Yom Kippur has a way of answering the question with what we have been proud of, as well as what we ought to be ashamed of. What is it that you have done is not a question for information. It's a question of introspection. A colleague of mine has taught that Judaism does not believe that we are made better by forgetting our own capacity for wrong gossip that wounds others cruel speech theft callousness these are our daily transgressions ignoring the hurt they cause does not make it simply it does not make it just inhuman the insensitive person feels less pain himself and inflicts more on others remorse is not a waste It's an acknowledgment of another's feelings and fragility. We should not morbidly dwell on our faults. To do so is less a moral trait than, I think, a character disorder. Equally, however, the inability to feel guilt, to admit what one has done to another, is a spiritual sickness. On this Yom Kippur, we would do well to hear the voice of God as Eve heard the voice of God and learned that the beginning of repentance is not fear, it's regret. So that's two questions. Where are you and what have you done? Now that brings us to the third question the Torah asks, and it's an even more pointed question. After Cain kills Abel, God confronts Cain and he says, "Eya, hevel, Where is your brother Abel? Ouch! We think that the pointed questions on Yom Kippur revolve only around ourselves, what we want, who we are, and our own self-reflection. But this third question of the Torah tells us that this day, is not just about ourselves, of course, but about the people all around us. How have they been treated by us? Are we respectful of them? Do we deride them publicly or privately? Would they be proud of us or ashamed in the way that we have dealt with them? And of course, this is not just directed to family members, but to everybody. Is our approach to the way we deal with others one of mitzvah or one of malice? The Midrash says that when we die, we stand before God and we answer three questions. Yeah, there's that three-question thing again. And one of the questions is interesting. It asks, God says, were you honest in business? This is probably the most challenging question we can be asked in any such circumstance. If everything about business is simply making a profit, then cheating, abuse, misdirection, lying, and so forth should be permitted. And of course, they're not. In fact, there is more material in the Talmud dealing with business and contracts and fairness and wages and ethics than even the laws of Shabbat and Passover. When we realize the pain that we have caused, that realization is and of itself a mitzvah, a commandment that we have responded to if we act on it. We sometimes see this played out in our lives and even in the public sphere. And I found a great example of this. 1985, Japan Airlines crashed into a mountain, killing 520 people. Without going into too much detail, the investigation found out that a vital part of the airplane, what Stella and I will call the fear of God, something small and insignificant, but without it, everything falls apart. And that vital part was not replaced. And feeling that it was partially his fault, a couple months later, the president of Japan Airlines faced the relatives of the victims and he bowed low and long, which in Japanese society and Japanese culture is a sign of complete regret and a wail for forgiveness. And after turning to a wall covered with wooden tablets bearing the victims' names, he bowed again. And in a voice that quavered and wept, Yasumoto Takagi asked for forgiveness, and he accepted responsibility. And one by one, people walked up to the altar. They left the chrysanthemum for remembrance. They bowed, and they turned away. Families and dignitaries and airline employees walked up to the altar for more than an hour, pausing to pray, to wipe away tear, and to stand silently. For Japan Airlines, This service marked the culmination of a two-month nonstop exercise in accountability. And in the days right after the accident, when family members traveled to a small uh, village to identify the bodies of their loved ones, the airline staff stayed with them. They paid all their expenses. They brought them food. They brought them drink. They brought them clean clothes. Staff people stayed with the families to arrange for the funerals. And to block intrusive reporters. Japan Airlines even set up a scholarship fund for parents whose children, for children whose parents had died. It spent one and a half million dollars on two elaborate memorial services, and executives attended every single one, every single funeral of a victim. The airline felt that it had to perform these acts of conciliation. Otherwise, it would have been accused of inhumanity and irresponsibility. Now, naturally, being a cynic, the airline's self-interest was indeed at stake. But its quick admission of responsibility, its personal help to family members created a web of gratitude and obligation. The pain of the victims, families, was acknowledged, and seeing the humanity of the victims was not, ju- and not just as customers, went a long way. It may have been too late for Abel. It may have been too late for the victims of a plane crash, but we are alive, and it is not too late for us. Where is Abel, your brother? Is a question we keep uppermost in our repenting minds. The questions reverberate today. Where are you? What have you done? Where is Abel your brother? But now the real hard work begins, and for that, we go to the fourth and last question of the Torah. When Moses is tasked by God to take the people Israel out of Egyptian slavery, he knows that he has neither the resources the knowledge, or, in fact, the gravitas to do it. In fact, he really has no way to prove to Pharaoh that he is who he claims to be. And so God gives him something of a business card. And God asked the fourth and most challenging question, and he said, What do you have in your hand? And Moses looked down, and what did he see? He saw the staff in his hands, and he knew what God was really asking. God did not give Moses magical powers. God told Moses to look at the gifts he had, to look at his potential as a leader, to look at the huge task at hand and evolve into the leader he knew he could be. To put things in perspective, think of it this way, especially if you are tempted to think that the tasks are too long, and though it was just a stick, (laughs) we know it turned out to be much more than that. What Moses was really holding was a symbol of redemption with which he split the Red Sea and thereby rescued the nascent Jewish people. It was the stick that also found the water in the desert. It was the symbol that God was present when the people fought for their survival. There was nothing magical about this stick. The stick did not change. Moses was changed by the symbol, but Moses also changed the stick. When he reluctantly took upon himself the mantle of leadership, he didn't know it then, but we know that he created the Jewish people. That was him using his hands as instruments of redemption. Our hands are free, too. Our hands are holding instruments of redemption. What are we going to do with the gifts that we have? How are we going to repair this terribly broken, distraught world? Though we really don't know which movie director said it, someone once said that every movie ever made has three acts. In the first act, you put your character up a tree, In the second trap, in the second act, you set the tree on fire. And then in the third act, you get them down. On this Yom Kippur, the tree is the oftentimes mess we have made with our sins, with our gossip, with our sensitivity, with our outright cruelty, and with our self-centeredness and our arrogance and our conceit. The fire, though, is that moment when we remind ourselves, that the only thing that remains of us after we are gone is a shem tov a good name and that awareness our mortality beckons our humility and getting out of the tree is where we use our honest self-reflection our ha hanefesh our words our gifts our acknowledgments of our sins and our humility to climb down from a burning tree that is the moment when repentance is real. So what then is Jewish repentance? It is, in the words of a philosopher, the act of locating the source of our moral life in the face of the human other, and in that face, finding God. For such a person, responsibility is the essence of repentance. For him and for us, teshuva is the act of response, not just regret. For him and for us, answering the four questions honestly is the best we can do, and indeed the very best there is. And there are our new four questions that I urge you to take with you as you leave this sanctuary. Ayeka, where are you? Maasita, what have you done? Eyech achicha, where is your brother Abel? And, hand, what is in your hand. We begin the year with a very symbolic act, the act of tashlich, of throwing sins away or planting a tree and throwing water on the tree like we did last week. It is not the pain that's gone. It is not even the offense. It is that we recognize that as people, we can no longer change the past but we symbolically throw the past away. And we are telling ourselves in doing that, that the past is no longer an obstacle that it once was. None of us are beyond repentance. None of us are beyond repair. Today, once again, we begin to climb down from that burning tree. We begin the third act of our lives, which repeats every year. This year... Let our third act have a glorious ending, where we have heard the questions, where we have accepted the challenges, where we have seen the gifts of our hands, where we have found the truly divine in the other. Our Yom Kippur today begins, but our repentance beckons us throughout the year. For at every moment, those four questions linger, in our soul. And so on this era of Yom Kippur, I pray that we all have splendid third acts. Shana Tova, have a good year and keep asking questions.